the morning. Um, so our scripture reading today is from Paul's letter to the Church of Philippi. Um, if you want to, you can flip to Philippians two five or verse, chapter two, verses five through eleven. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's really good to see you. My family and I missed you last week. We uh, chose to spend the day with my good friend Josh Whitaker and his church family, uh, Zion Fellowship, right down the road um, by the Starbucks here on 23. Uh, just a really, really good friend of mine. So we worshiped with their family last week. We missed you. Uh, really good to be back with you. And like, um, like Ned said in his opening, if you're visiting, we are really glad to have you with our family. You don't need to prove anything to us today. Uh, you don't need to do something special to fit in. We're just really glad that you're here, and we pray that you find rest with us and that you're encouraged uh, by the gospel as we look to Jesus together as a family. So let's pray, and we'll get right down to work. Father, we're here as your needy kids, and we want that to be our posture. Thank you for the reminder last week uh, in Ron's sermon that you're a good father who delights in giving not only good gifts, but the exact right gift, the, the exact right good gift that our souls need. And Father, protect us from some of the things we want. Thank you that you know better, you know what we need, and please give us today uh, what we need in Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you are our high and humble king. Help us to see you that way and take our confidence in you, strip away our self-confidence. And Spirit, I pray that in the same way that you brought our hearts to, to faith in Jesus, for the very first time that you would reinvigorate and bring our hearts to life again this morning. Father, I pray for those who are here this, uh, this morning and hurting, that you would be near the brokenhearted. I pray for those who are here and they're weary, that they would find in you, Jesus, rest for their souls. And Father, for those who are here and feel all alone, even in a, a small room full of people, I pray that they would know you as the present God, the good Father, and that they would not any longer feel that sense of loneliness, but they would feel at home in you, Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's do some work. We're going to continue on in our series one church, one God, one hope. And like we mentioned, uh, Ron preached last week and drew our attention to God the Father. The focus of the sermon was on the person of God the Father. I wasn't with you, like I said, but I uh, watched, listened to that sermon on YouTube on Friday and kind of had fun. I just live tweeted, not really, but like via text to Ron as I listened to the sermons, just to his sermon, what I really appreciated or what I really found life-giving in the sermon. But I hope you had the same experience I did as I approached the end of the sermon and Ron preaching about God the Father singing over us 
not just on our good days, but on our bad days, the lowest of days, and how he sings over us in our brokenness and our shame and guilt. It's just very beautiful, and I had to push away from the table, stop taking notes, and just enjoy the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of our good Father. I hope you, you have experienced the Father's goodness in that same beautiful way as well. So Ron, I don't know if he's in the room right now, but I just wanted to thank him publicly for a really life-giving sermon about our Father, uh, God the Father. This morning, we shift our attention to God the Son, Jesus, who is our high and humble King. And unashamedly, I just took the title from the song that we just sang. I love that song. I do need to give credit where credit is due. Uh, Jesus is our high and humble King. I chose that title because if we had to summarize the portion of the creed that is about Jesus, those three words are perfect. We are met with a with a high and a humble king. We see that in the creed, and we see that in Philippians 2 that Ben just read for us. We'll explore in a little more detail here in a, in a bit. High and humble king. The big idea for the morning is right along those lines. Jesus is our high and humble king who came down from heaven for us and for our salvation. That gives us a, a helpful summation of who Jesus is and what Jesus did to remind our own hearts and to teach our children and to help new followers of Jesus learn about him. So we could turn that into a Q&A, a response if we wanted to. I could ask, who is Jesus? And you could respond, Jesus is our high and humble king. So let's do that, actually. Who is Jesus? All right. And what did Jesus do? All right, man, we got the lead out front. We got our, our sound's a little off. We got it coming over from the, but that's good. That's surround sound. Like, that's what we need. That's what you need in your ears, the surround sound of the gospel. Jesus is our high and humble king who came down from heaven for us and for our salvation. Here's the flow, the outline, if you will. Uh, we'll hit the creed first. Uh, I want to just draw your attention to a few pieces of the, the, the portion of the creed that talks about Jesus as our high and humble king. Once we do that, I want to contrast the high and humble king of the creed with the, um, with the kind of appropriated version of Jesus that exists in what I'll call Christian adjacent spaces. Uh, and I want to show you how the creed helps bring some clarity to some confusing conversations that we might have with uh, groups of persons who may confess to be Christians or profess to be followers of Jesus, but in fact have a, a different understanding of who Jesus is and the work that Jesus did. Uh, but then before we move on, lest you feel like we're just picking on people outside, I will spend a little bit of time picking on us collectively, okay? Because there is a, an appropriated Jesus that exists in our evangelical spaces too, and we need to point that out. So creed, contrast, and then our confession, ultimately, while the creed is our friend and it's beautiful, uh, our confession is anchored more deeply. It's anchored in the Word of God. The creed's beautiful because it beautifully summarizes truths from Scripture. And so while it is a sermon series through the creed, it's a sermon series through the creed insofar as the creed beautifully summarizes truth about God from Scripture. And so we want to kind of anchor our series in those Scriptures. And so today... I want to show you how our confession that we see here in the creed, the high and humble king, is anchored beautifully in Philippians chapter 2, like Ben just read for us. Once we hit those three pieces, we'll transition into a brief uh, moment that we'll share together to reflect. We will look at some considerations based on Jesus as our high and humble king. 
Uh, we want to look at how Jesus has served us and is serving us still. We want to consider whether or not the culture of our family is shaped by the character of our king, or if we may in fact have an appropriated Jesus living around here. Um, and then there will be an opportunity for you to actually have individual response, and I'll explain that later. So let's get right to work. We'll begin with the creed, Jesus, our high and humble king. Now, we just recited that creed again together, and that's a, that's a long creed to read out loud in public, isn't it? That's a long creed, five, six, seven screens. Which member of the Trinity dominates most of that creed? Who do we speak most of in the creed? All right, and there was a real reason for that. I remember a couple weeks ago when we were first introduced to the creed, we remember that kind of the impetus for writing the creed was all the controversy swirling around Jesus. If you can imagine, if, imagine a boxing ring, okay? Boxing ring, UFC cage if you prefer. I'd prefer UFC, but boxing ring works a little better for this. Uh, imagine a boxing ring, and imagine the young church is a young, like she's a young fighter in this ring, and she's growing in her gospel understanding. She's growing in her gospel confidence of who Jesus is and what he did for us. But we're, we're still learning. We're still growing. We're a little shaky on our feet. We don't throw heavy punches. Now imagine the ring is increasingly filled with these featherweight, bantamweight, heavyweight fighters who are throwing jabs against this young church and the gospel and throwing jabs like Jesus really isn't God or Jesus is like God, but not entirely God. He was created. He's not, he's not been around forever, right? Just throwing jab after jab, kind of undermining this confidence in the gospel. And so the church gets together and they're like, man, our ring is full of these heavyweight fighters just throwing punches at the gospel. We need a heavyweight fighter. Let's write a creed, right? And that's actually why they named it Creed in honor of Apollo and Adonis, right? There's the history behind the name, so you know. Um, like, wow, John really was an academic waver into the Marine Corps. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and yes, while I was, while I was, no lie, uh, not ASVAB waver. There's a I was an academic waver, but not ASVAB waver. Um, though I was an academic waver, uh, we do know the etymology of creed is anchored in Latin, right? Okay. Where are my CCers, and what does that believe? What's, I mean, what does creed mean? Yeah, I believe, right? I believe, we believe. So uh, that's what creed means. This is what we believe. But I'm a word association guy, so I would much rather associate the naming of the creed with Apollo and Adonis, because that's exactly why they wrote the creed. They needed a heavyweight fighter to get in the ring. Ron said this last week, the whole reason they wrote the creed was to counter the lies that were being told about who God is. We got to throw some punches back. Not at people. Like, Christianity is not this violent... It's not a revolutionary movement, right? Jesus was very clear about that. Like, uh, if my kingdom were of this world, you'd have a sword and you'd be fighting already. Put the swords down. We're not talking about physical violence. We're talking about a boxing match between ideas about who God is. And so the creed is our Apollo stepping into the ring to throw punches back at lies about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and their work. But let's be humble and acknowledge uh, we shouldn't pay, we shouldn't um, give too much credit to the need for a, an Apollo throwing punches outside of our hearts. The real reason the creed is our friend and we need her. And the reason a couple weeks ago we talked about holding the hand of the creed is we have, we have heavyweight liars in our own hearts that lie to us every day about who God is and isn't, 
the Father's not kind, Jesus isn't faithful, He's not enough, the Spirit is not active, He's not working, I don't have hope. You need Apollo and Adonis throwing gospel punches in your heart and in your ring, knocking those lies down. you got to hold the hand of the creed with one of your hands, because he needs one hand free to swing the hook and the jab to knock those lies down, okay? She, the creed is our friend. Athanasius had this line as they wrote about Jesus, because this is really the issue that they were coming after. He said, the son is everything the father is, except the father. That's kind of the driving, the driving idea behind this entire section of the creed, because that was the debate of the day. Jesus is eh, similar to the father, similar, but not quite God, right? Not, not fully God. Good guy, good teacher, not fully God. So Athanasius, who was kind of one of the framers, one of, one of the guys crafting this heavyweight fighter said, no, 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 no. Jesus is everything the Father is except the Father. And we see this in the creed. Let's, let's get the first third of it. If we broke the portion of the creed that addresses the person of Jesus into sections, we would have three very neat thirds, right? Three very neat thirds. The first third gives us a high view of Jesus, God himself. The middle third of the creed gives us the humble view of Jesus, the lowest of low view. Okay, so we're going to go from high to humble. And then the third third, if you will, of the creed gives us the reascended, the kingly view of Jesus. He was the high king who came down low and did his work and ascended back to the Father, and he's now on his throne again. High, humble king. So it works for the creed and the passage of Scripture that Ben just read for us. It's the same pattern. Paul opens up, high view of Jesus. He's really God. Humble view of Jesus. He really did come in the form of a man as the God-man, right? And he did his work. He went really low, and then he reascended to the Father. You have a king who's seated on the throne, high and humble king. So here it is. Let's see the high view of Jesus. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the high view is already right in the first line with his title. Let's take Jesus out for a moment. That was the name given to him at birth, but his title, Lord Christ, that's a high title. Uh, Lord would be a God who is king. Like his title says he is God himself. Lord Christ, let's put those together. We have a, we have a God who is a king, who is, that man, that, that title Christ is so rich. He's a promised king who's going to do some rescuing work for his people. Jesus is our high king. He's the only son of God. Another statement of, of high view. He's, he is thus the only son of God, God himself. Begotten from the Father before all ages. That word begotten is not really used by us. We can misunderstand it. I think in our language, we see a word like begotten and we think, oh, like entrance into, like he was, begot he was birthed, it became something. And that would be for us a misunderstanding of the word. And in fact, they wouldn't have chosen that word if that was the case, because if you, if you zip down a little bit, the whole point they're trying to make is what? Begotten not made. So they're trying to draw a contrast. So begotten's got to mean something other than being born and being made. And so the better understanding of that word would be one and only son or the one and only unique son. In fact, like if you grew up in a King James circle like I did or New King James, you would have memorized John 3.16 with, for God so loved the world that he... Look at all you King James people. Beautiful. Keep rocking the Queen's English. Good job. Okay. But then in every other version, like they would take begotten now, and in your circles, you'd be like, see, see, 
modernity is going after the Bible. They're trying to take Jesus out and the gospel out. But that's not what was happening. Uh, translators were actually using words that were more reflective of the original tent of that language. And so the original tent is to communicate clearly that it's, he's not a, a being who came into existence. He's a being that always existed as something. He's the eternal son of God. So begotten means one and only unique son. It speaks to eternal relationship. Jesus was the eternal son. And so really what it speaks to is Jesus is the, the always and pre-existing God who is always God the Son. There is never a time in the universe where Jesus did not exist or where he did not exist as God the Son, okay? Begotten from the Father before all ages. You can't imagine the time. He is God from God, not similar to, same essence, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence, not similar, fully God, through him all things were made. Creator, high view, he's our creator. We're the created one. So if you want to theology word for this third of the creed. We are, we are hearing the transcendence of Jesus. He is so high above us, right? God, creator, king. Middle third gives us humble view of Jesus. For us and for our salvation. And here it is, tipped in the first line. He came what? Okay, so the high king comes down. He's going low. He, he came down from heaven. Here's another low, humble word. He became incarnate. Incarnate simply and literally means to take on human flesh or enter into flesh. I mean, that's literally what it means. So the idea is Jesus, who was already existing as God the Son, was incarnate in that he didn't cease being God, but God himself entered into the flesh of a human being, right? Still God. He became incarnate, but that brought him low. Uh, this happened through the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. That'll be important here in a little bit. In other words, you can read through the Gospels. Every account of Mary becoming pregnant is a supernatural, miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, acting on Mary and causing her to become pregnant with Jesus, God the Son. He's made human. He was crucified. That word is a low word, right? Roman world can't get lower than crucifixion. To be crucified means lowest of the low criminal. You can't go lower than crucifixion. And in the Jewish world, for God's own people, to be crucified meant, uh, the view was, man, if you were crucified, God himself had personally cursed you. That's the death you die when you're a cursed person. Okay, so you go from all the way up high on the throne of heaven to being cursed by God himself and dying on the cross. And look at how this third of the creed closes. You can't get any lower than the last word of this creed. You got earth piled on top of you now. You're from creator in heaven on the throne up high to dead and buried in the earth you created. High and humble. But he's a king. Final third. The third day he rose again. According to the scriptures, scripture is very clear that was a bodily resurrection. Jesus physically died. His body went into a tomb and that body was resurrected. It wasn't just a spiritual resurrection that Jesus exists floating around in the spirit world. His body was resurrected. His body ascends. He ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the father. That's where a king sits down. He will come again. The king is coming again. He's coming with glory. Now that word's important too. Glory tells us that his coming will be obvious and physical. Okay, uh, glory has turned into a euphemism for us in our culture. If I were to say to you that you saw me in all my glory, what do I mean? What do I mean? You're laughing. 
I mean, you really saw me, right? Inescapably saw me. Um, now, all kidding aside, there's a reason that euphemism exists. If Jesus is coming in all his glory, what that means is he's coming in all his godness. But it, what that word means is it will be an inescapable reality. Nobody's going to miss it. Physical, world-stopping. You can safely be off all your social medias. And what's the fear of missing out? You won't have it because ha you will see it. Nobody will have to tell you firsthand. He'll be back in all his glory. Right? We use that term like when our little kids run out of the shower and run down. Like, there he was in all his glory. Everybody saw it. When Jesus returns as king, it will be an inescapable reality. And he'll come to judge the living and the dead. So for some of you, that is a prospect filled with hope. For some of you who don't know Jesus as your rescuing king, that is a prospect filled with fear. He is coming back to judge everyone. And the good news of the gospel is his kingdom will have no end. That's good because every temporary kingdom in our world to include America and Japan are tragically broken with systemic injustices, poverty, uh, oppression, uh, economic, and all the injustices, tragically broken. All the beauty is marred. And for the first time, since Eden, Jesus will rule over a people where only beauty is known and only justice. Only justice. You can't imagine that. Only justice. No leaked videos of injustice. Only justice. Only peace. You will all be unemployed. Only peace. Amen. You won't need to work. I mean, that you will need to work, but you're going to have to, you're all going to need skill bridge, okay? And a nonviolent. Uh, you will not need to take up arms. That day's coming. That's what Jesus is coming back for, and it will be absolutely beautiful, okay? So that is the high and humble king of the creeds. Now let's contrast with some faith expressions in what we will call Christian adjacent spaces, okay? Many of us have friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, and dude, dude, those conversations can get so confusing, like, man, maybe you are. Like, maybe, maybe Jehovah's Witnesses really are part of the... Like, if there's a river stretching back 2,000 years, and the river is, like, historic, orthodox Christianity that affirms the creed, I'm like, man, we share all the same vocabulary. You say Jesus, I say Jesus. You say grace, I say grace. You say God the Father, I say God the... What's going on in the river, out of the river, right? Same thing with... It's even more confusing with my Mormon friends than it is my Jehovah's Witnesses friends. Like, all the same vocabulary. Um... This is why the creed, if we will continue to hold her hand, is a really good friend to us. Not only is she life-giving to us, she is super clarifying in conversations that could otherwise become confusing very quickly. And so they would, she would serve us well, but she would also serve our friends well. So let's do a little contrast or not our high and humble king. And uh, for those of you, man, I've had conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses on this island multiple times. They've come to my home. I've encountered them different places. I just want to show you a few contrasts with the high and humble king of the creeds. So per Jehovah's Witness doctrine, Jesus was created as Michael. So the creed, right, if she's our boxer, Apollo throws a punch here. Jesus is what? Begotten, not made. Jesus is a lesser though mighty God. No, 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 no. God from God, light from light of the same essence. Jesus was born as a, as a mere human, not God in human flesh. Yo, that is, that, is, that is the exact opposite of what the creed said. God in human flesh. Jesus was re resurrected spiritually, but not physically. His body is still in the ground. No, 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 no. Resurrected, ascended in his body to the Father, and he's coming in glory, meaning you will see a body of the resurrected king coming back to rescue bodily. 
uh, Jesus' return was invisible, spiritual, and it already happened in 1914. So again, not picking, just I want to help us be clear, and this is the gift that the creed gives us. Listen, that, the creed was so clear on this point. When Jesus returns, it will be the opposite of invisible. It will be, if you want a word that starts with I-N, it'll be inescapable. It'll be so visible you will be paralyzed by it, and your knee, whether you have already believed in Jesus or not, your knee's going to hit the ground. You will see him return. You will hear him return. So those are our Jehovah's Witness friends where Apollo, the creed, swings in and provides some gospel clarity through her punches. Again, not at people, but at ideas. Let me stress that. Nonviolent interactions with our friends who are outside the historic uh, river of Christian belief, right? And how about Mormons? I've had a lot of uh, conversations with Mormons. Uh, they're about to finish the temple. Uh, so it's basically done. It's a big deal for the Mormon community. A lot of Mormons in the military. Some of my closest friends in the Marine Corps were Mormons. Um, I was at Family Mart the other morning, and they are seriously up in the game. There were about 12 to 15 Mormon missionaries getting their breakfast, going to work. Uh, I've seen them the whole time I've lived here in twos and threes and fours, never like 14 at a time. Like they're really going hard with the uh, temple opening. And I think some of our conversations with Mormons get even more confusing because uh, the vocabulary is just so similar. And Mormons are so beautifully kind. Like sometimes the culture of Mormon community can feel like really gospel shaped on the surface. Like, wow, maybe, like maybe. Okay, so uh, President Hinckley, who was a leader in the Mormon church said this, and I, I agree with him and I, man, I'm so glad for his honesty. In fact, I was communicating with a leader in the Mormon church uh, a couple weeks ago. And he was asking if we could unite, since we both believe in Jesus, if we could do some things together as a church, as churches. And part of what I was trying to say is, look, we're both using the same name, but we're referring to two very, very different people. And we just have to be honest and genuine about that. Like your own, one of your own presidents made that statement very clearly, right? The traditional Christ of whom they speak, that we would be the they, is not the Christ of whom I speak. And he's right, he's right, right? That's what the creed says. So here you go. Here are just a few differences. We have to start with God the Father here because Mormons believe their doctrine teaches that God the Father was a man with a physical body and he progressed to Godhood and he still exists in bodily form, okay? Father, Son, and Spirit are three different gods, not one God and three person. The creed throws that hard punch. Jesus is the Son of God and his goddess wife, right? So there was a spiritual birth before there was a physical birth. So the implication there is Jesus is not eternally pre-existing, right? Jesus progressed to deity in the spirit world. And now here, Jesus was born because God the Father had sex with Mary. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying this to be disrespectful, but just to go back to our metaphor, like if our boy Apollo is throwing punches in, in the ring, this is just where he like drops his gloves. He's like, get out of my ring. Like, just stop. Like, I'm not even throwing a punch at that. Like, that, 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 is, that is beyond absurd, right? The clear witness of scripture. It's just beyond absurd. So he drops his gloves, says, dude, just get out of my ring. But then the retort is, and Jesus' brother is Lucifer. He's like, all right, all right get back in the ring. Come on. Uh, Jesus' brother, Jesus does not have a, 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 a brother. He is the one and only unique son of God. Jesus has stepbrothers, children, or half-brothers and sisters, if you will, who were born to Joseph and to Mary. Uh, none of them were named Lucifer, and the Satan, is not, Satan is not Jesus' brother, but here's a, an important implication for us, too, as followers of Jesus. Satan and Jesus are not co-equals, okay? Very important. There's one God, and Satan is so far below 
right? There's not a contest going on. It's not that it might go either way. Jesus won definitively on the cross and through the resurrection. Satan is already defeated. They are not siblings, and there is no chance that Satan wins and that his kingdom endures forever. Not happening. One more uh, point as it relates to the work of Jesus, just a very important distinction between Christianity and Mormonism. This is from their own scriptures. Second Nephi says, we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Okay, so if you were in the conversation, right, what is, what is your, you don't even need the creed for this, though the creed does throw a punch at this. So Apollo helps us out. What's your response in gentleness and kindness? What is your clear response here? Like with almost the same vocabulary. All right, give it to him, baby. Put it up there. Here it is, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace are you saved through faith in what? This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of your works, not after all you can do, so that no one may boast. That is the beautiful gospel, and that is a profound difference. You guys, you, guys, you can't, look, 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 it's not an argument. We want to love our Mormon friends really well. So our Mormon friends, despite the appearance of a beautiful culture, listen, exist under the burden that it's after all that they can do. Okay, so let's be super gentle, and let's understand, and let's lean in with love, and just communicate this simple truth. You don't have to be educated you don't need a degree. You don't need a certificate on how to argue with a Mormon. You speak the truth of God's gospel. We do, the creed leads us to believe. We confess a Holy Spirit who works. Uh, our friends who are Mormons have a burden on their shoulders that is unbearable. And it's right there, right? All right. So we've looked at the creed. We met Apollo. Uh, we got some contrast. Uh, now, we picked on adjacent spaces uh, let's just be honest, there is a, a, those are appropriated versions of Jesus, but there is an appropriated version of Jesus who lives in more evangelical Christian spaces than he does not. We saw this a couple weeks ago. Uh, a scientific poll revealed that 43% of Christians believe that Jesus was created, not pre-existing. 73% of Christians believe Jesus is a good teacher and godly, God-ish, but not fully God. Okay, we don't need to pick on anybody else. We got problems in our own house. There is an appropriated version of Jesus in more churches than he is not. Appropriated Jesus affirms all of your already held beliefs. And your appropriated Jesus never challenges you to, to, to reject something that you have believed and reorient on his teaching, right? Uh, appropriated Jesus affirms your political convictions. He affirms your social views on all things. Uh, there's a Bible verse. Jesus, the appropriated Jesus is like a Pez dispenser who has a Bible verse to support you in every social argument, every argument about a vaccine, every argument about your schooling choices. Appropriated Jesus affirms your schooling decision and communicates to you that families that don't school the same way you do aren't quite doing it the right way, right? Appropriated Jesus runs all over evangelical spaces. Um, some of us know, us as, know him as Dashboard Jesus. His head is always shaking, yes. He's your Chick-fil-A Jesus. Had some snide remarks in the first service. You can keep them, right? He's our Southern Jesus. He's a nice guy. He's, your, he's, a, he's our NASCAR, college football, Southern scene, right? 
um, appropriated Jesus. We could spend the whole morning talking about appropriated Jesus. Um, and maybe the question that we can ask ourselves or what we need to consider is this. Because uh, some of you are offended. You're like, ah, appropriated Jesus, John. That's not really, that doesn't seem fair. Like Jesus is a really big piece of my life. And right, that's my point. Appropriated Jesus gets a piece of your life. Appropriated Jesus gets your church attendance. Appropriated Jesus gets a little bit of your wallet. Appropriated Jesus gets your, your bicep tattoo, your armband. Like the appropriated Jesus lives there. He hangs on your arm, but you don't hang on his arm. Appropriated Jesus gets your t-shirt and, you know, like here you are. Appropriated Jesus gets a really big piece. But Jesus is the high and humble king. Kings don't get a piece. Kings get the whole thing. Kings don't get a piece. Kings reign. Jesus doesn't get a piece of the earth or a piece of you. Like Jesus as king gets the whole thing. Appropriated Jesus gets a piece. Appropriate Jesus reigns and rules over the entirety of your life. Appropriated Jesus gets most of your life. You keep your sexuality. Appropriated Jesus gets most of your life. You keep your entertainment. Appropriated Jesus gets most of your life. You keep your me time. Appropriate Jesus gets the whole thing. Appropriated Jesus is like a Pez dispenser, but that's too old. That would have showed up in like Ron's sermon from an 80s and 90s reference, right? Since I'm younger and, and appropriated Jesus is, was the Pez dispenser of the 80s. He's the Tinder app for evangelicals now. Tinder exists to give you what you want, when you want it, and if you don't like it, you swipe. That's appropriated Jesus. That's our view of Jesus in relationships. Man, if Jesus loved me, I'd be surrounded with relationships with people who just like me, they affirm me. It doesn't work. I shouldn't have to work a relationship. That's tender Jesus. He exists in our church spaces too. That's how we look for a church. Ah, swipe, 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 swipe. Visit 10 churches, swipe, swipe, swipe. There, that's me. Everything's just like me. I love this. Won't take any work. I, I won't have to bear up with anything. It's like they wrote the worship set for me. Amazing. Congratulations, you have Tinder Jesus. Appropriated, not appropriate. So how do we make sure we have appropriate Jesus? And what does he look like? Here he is. I'm preaching us into overtime a little bit. Let's, let's keep at it. We can do this. Philippians 2, verse 5. Same pattern. Let's see the same pattern. High, humble, king. We see high Jesus in verse 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. All right, two very important points about high Jesus right here. First of all, verse six, he was. That's an existing, that's a statement of existence. It's not that he began to exist at his birth or when God the Father uh, created him with, with his goddess wife. God the Son, Jesus Christ, was already existing and always has been existing as God the Son. There was never a time in the universe that Jesus wasn't existing. That's what he means by he was. He was already existing as what? In what? The form of God. In the form of God is a synonym for really God. Jesus was existing really as God, not as something else, not partially God, like really fully in the form of God. Now, this next phrase like, seems like it throws a curveball, right? Oh, wait, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped at. So Jesus was existing, but he was kind of grasping for, oh, I got to be like God, but he didn't, right? He let it go, and he came down. No, 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 no. Paul's point there is that Jesus was already holding on to equality with the Father. He had it in his hand. 
But instead of being the self-gaining God, he proved to be the self-giving God. And he let go of what he already had. Jesus already existed with equality to God the Father. And he opened up his hand and said, I'm going to set this aside. Self-giving God. High king, humble king. Verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Two key verbs here. First in verse 7, Jesus emptied himself. In verse 8, he humbled himself. So the, the God who was already existing and had everything opened a hand and poured himself out, emptied himself, humbled himself to come down low. How did he do that? He took, there's that word form again. He was really a servant. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And here's form again, being found in human form. There's our incarnation. He really was God and he really became a man, but he didn't stop being God. It was God embodied in human flesh. Like for real, Paul's saying, in human form. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. You can't get any, can you get any more humble than death? There's nowhere else to go. Like, just let that sink in. Humility led to death. That's where humility goes. You have to die to be humble. Even death on a cross, right? Cursed death. Hey guys, Jesus the King. Jesus, your creator, the king, took off his crown so he could take up his cross. Or we should say it better this way. The king took off his crown to take up your cross. That's the cross he picked up. You know, I think about my dad going to work. I think about what he put on. When I was a kid, most of my growing up years, he drove a milk truck in Vermont. Amazing job. Tell you stories some other time. I got to go with him all the time. So he put stuff on, right? You put a uniform on to go to work. Your kids associate you going to work with you putting stuff on. One time when my dad was leaving the house, my older brother walks into the, the kitchen. Dad's in his uniform. He put his stuff on. My brother's holding a screwdriver. He hands it to my dad. He's like, what's a screwdriver for, son? And he's like, well, dad, you probably got to screw something up at work today. So here you go. All right. He didn't know what he was saying. He just said it that way. And it was hilarious. We associate putting stuff on to go to work. Look at this. Look at this. The high king didn't need to put anything on. He took it off. Took off his crown. Took off his robes. And man, I'm telling you, when I see the Jesus of the Gospels, what we know about him standing up off this throne, I don't see a pensive, thoughtful, hesitant, slowly moving. Eh, God the Father wants me to do it. I'll do it. Nobody else around to do it. I see a strong, intentional, determined, impassioned, personally caring Jesus with strength and purpose standing up off his throne and gripping the crown and forcefully taking off at his head and throwing it on the ground and saying to his father, I'm going to work and I'll be back. And when I'm back, it'll be finished. The work will be done. That's how Jesus went to work. He didn't just show up as a gentle little baby. He left heaven with that kind of purpose, ripping his crown off, knowing that a crown of thorns would be slammed into his head. He took it off so he could go to work and rescue you and rescue me and bring us back home to the Father. That's 
our high and humble king. And because that's our high and humble king, here he is. He was transcendent. He condescended. And then he ascended. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's God to the glory of God the Father. Now, some people like to argue like, hey, there's not really a clear like verse in the New Testament where it's like, hey, Jesus is God. Like there's not a clear, which Jesus is never like, hey, I'm God. But that's just not true. That's not true. And here's a perfect example, okay? Because there's a quote here from Isaiah. Let me just show it to you. It says this, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. This is God talking through Isaiah. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth is gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me, that shall not return to me. What's he say? Every knee will bow. That is one of the clearest statements in the New Testament, that Jesus is the high king who chose to become the humble king. He went to work and he got down low. There, I love the beauty and the flow there because some of you feel really low and really far away from God. And the point of this passage is Jesus went so low, he died and went into the depths of the earth. Can you escape from God the Father in your rebellion or in your pain any further away from that? No. And if there was a place further away, Jesus would have gone there too. There is no place Jesus would not have gone as the high and humble king for your rescue. High and humble king, now seated on the throne. And someday he's coming back to rule and to reign in beauty. And it will be beautiful. All right, we got to respond here because um, there's a question we need to ask. Like, you know, how do we know if we're living as a church with an appropriated version of Jesus or the appropriate view of a high and humble king? And I think uh, I would just say it's more simple than we might realize. And Paul actually gives us like a little self-test right here. And the self-test is this. Does the character of this king shape the culture of our family? You could say, does the character of this high and humble king shape, shape the culture of my heart and my family, our family? Well, what would that look like? Here it is. Chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant, more important than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is the test for us to discern if that culture is here, at least in form, right? Like we can see it. It's not perfect, but we can see it. And that's what we want. Okay, appropriate view of high and humble king. But if it's anything else, we're operating with a fake Jesus, an appropriated version of Jesus that's more common in our culture than he's not. But look at the beauty of this description. Uh, one of the pastors I've learned a lot from, his name is Ray Ortland, said there are two ways that you can approach church, God's family of people. You can approach it the cultural way and show up and be like, here I am and expect the whole thing to be tailored for you and to meet all your needs. And if not, swipe, 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 Tinder Jesus, find a perfect church. Here I am, 
You can approach it that way if you want. Congratulations, you have appropriated Jesus. Or you can approach it, approach it in a way that is shaped by the character of our king, and you don't show up and say, here I am. You show up and you say, hey, there you are. How about that? And I'm here for you. Right? And in all of our desires for this gathered family, it's okay if the music does not quite do it for me. Man, but I hope that your soul is pointed to Jesus and deeply encouraged by everything that I just don't really care for or wouldn't choose for myself. Right? You're sitting there and you're like, man, John's preaching again. When's Vince scheduled? Can we get that guy up here? He actually preaches like he went to seminary. Get him back up there. Right? It changes. Be like, all right, fine. If we have to listen to John again and you're encouraged today, fine. If that's how Jesus works, all right, I'll deal with that. I'll bear with it. Like it changes everything from here I am to here you are. And I hope that whatever happens today, God uses to just rock your world with joy and hope and renewed faith in the high and humble king. Period. And I won't ever swipe right on any imperfect church. I'm just going to bear with it for you. Right. That's appropriate, Jesus. Let's close here. Uh, Philippians 2.7 says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You do realize that, right? Like Jesus took a form of a servant for you, right? The whole point was Jesus came, your creator came to serve you. Like just let that sit for a minute. Like you were, we know from the Bible, we were created by him, through him, and what? For him. You exist to serve him. What's the high king do? He becomes a humble king, reverses roles. So I'm actually coming to serve John, that rebel, the guy who has so little faith in me so imperfect, so, just so inconsistent. So let me just ask you, like, what has Jesus done personally to serve you? Where was your brokenness? Where's your pain? Where's your pride? Where's your sorrow? Where's your rebellion? Like, where has Jesus shown himself to be good already in serving you? Where do you need Jesus to serve you? For those of you who have yet to bow your knee to Jesus, where is your pain? Where is your, where is your, what are you ashamed of? That's what Jesus came to serve. The high and humble king. We're going to sing a little bit. And then in a moment, we will, you will have the opportunity to come down front and briefly respond through confession. We'll have a couple prompts for you. One of those says, I confess Jesus is my king and he has proven to be my good king by. So this prompt is meant to lead us to confess confidence in our good king. The second prompt, and they'll be on the screen at the same time, the second prompt says, Jesus is my king, but I confess that I've doubted his goodness when or during or because. So this prompt would lead us to confess ways that our hearts have, we, we know he's our good king, but our confidence has shifted away from him and shifted to ourselves or to another. Okay. The team's gonna come and lead us in some singing and shared communion. Let me pray for us as they come. Jesus, please let us see you as the high and humble king. There are people in here who feel so far away from you. There are people in here who have a low view of you, Jesus. There are people in here who, who haven't ever seen you. Spirit, please work powerfully. May we all see you. Strip away our self-confidence. Anchor our confidence in you, Jesus. Be near to the brokenhearted. Save the oppressed. Save the crushed in spirit. Give us the freedom to respond. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.